0: The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. 8, verse 27
1: through 33. And if you're using the Black Pew Bible in front of you, that's on page 844. Please stand for the reading of God's word.
0: Well, we sort of faltered at the post there, man, all right? So, Pastor Tom threw out a He is risen, and we were all like, we all mumbled some things out of the side of our mouth here, okay? So, the prompt is Christ is risen, and the response is He is risen indeed, all right? So, now you know what to do. So, Christ is risen, yes, so thank you for worshiping with us uh, on this resurrection. Thank you for doing that, right? I, I sort of just felt Tommy was just feeling a little, his head hung a little bit more lower, on the way up the side there because of that one there, but Christ is risen indeed. And so as you just heard, what we're going to be doing is, um, in God's good providence, continuing our study through the Gospel of Mark. But in God's good timing, it just so happens that these are the verses that I've had planned for this Sunday for multiple, multiple months now. As we turn our attention to Jesus Christ, who is going to tell us who He is, in as plain as language as he possibly can. But more than just telling us who he is, he's going to come and show us what he came to do, what he had to do, what he must do, is the language he's going to use this morning. You see, King Jesus is the victorious and conquering king. King Jesus came, and he is the one who has victory over Satan He is the one who has conquered death. He is the one who has defeated sin. And so this morning, as we just look at these verses, they're just going to divide right in half, and literally we're just going to chew on two questions this morning. We're going to pose the question, who is Jesus, and answer that question from this text. Then we're going to round the corner and say, not only is it important for us to ask and wrestle with, who is Jesus, but we must be able to answer the question, what did he come to do? And so before we turn our attention to these verses this morning, let's pause and ask the Holy Spirit to speak and to move through the preaching of His words, and then we'll turn our attention to Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 33. So let's pray. God, I ask that you would come and that you would empower the preaching of your word right now, that this morning would be a demonstration of the Holy Spirit and His power so that faith might come to rest in the power of God. God, I pray that You would turn tune our ears to hear this morning, that You would make our eyes to see, that You would soften our hearts to receive, and that You would sharpen our minds this morning to think. To consider the claims of Jesus, who is the Christ, who came to die and rise again so that we might have everlasting life in him. Holy Spirit, we are desperate for you to move. We're asking you to come in power to do these things in such a way so that we may leave here this morning saying we have experienced the living God this morning as a result of the words of God preached. Set me aside, Lord. Use me as an instrument of divine intervention so that people would leave here changed this morning for eternity. It's in the powerful name of Christ I pray. Amen. Well, the date was May 21st, 1980. And for those who were of the right age, the chances are extremely good that you, along with everyone else, in May 21st of 1980 were waiting for the movie event of the year. Just three years earlier, in 1977, it was this year that George Lucas thrust watching spectators into a world of galactic battles with the release of Star Wars, A New Hope. But it was in May of 1980 that Lucas released his highly anticipated sequel, the follow-up to Star Wars and New Hope, The Empire Strikes Back. And in this particular movie, the second in the, what would eventually become a trilogy, it was in this movie that George Lucas brought moviegoers right to the edge of their seats when he introduced the mother of all plot twists. In what turned out to be the pivotal turning point of the entire movie trilogy, the Emperor's chief enforcer, Darth Vader, is revealed to be none other than what? The father of Luke Skywalker. The one thing nobody saw coming. And if you think about it, it's really a classic scene. Like whether you love Star Wars or hate it, whether you saw the movie when it was first released or you've since seen it sort of like as a coming-of-age passage of right, you know, like, ah, I'm finally old enough to get to watch Star Wars. You start watching them. No matter how you dice it, that scene where... Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker are hammering it out and they're in this epic battle and then Luke is finally overcome. It's just that classic, classic scene that just everyone realizes there's something special going on in that moment, right? You've got Darth Vader with that raspy voice of his, like, Luke, I'm your father, right? Every kid, after watching that movie, what do they do? They go try to find an oscillating fan in the house so they can stick their mouth up on it and try to imitate Darth Vader so they can talk like him. Maybe that was just me in my house you got Mark Hamill with that really weird contorted rubber face he does when he learns like Luke, uh, Darth Vader. He's like, no, nah! like he's just really overdramatic. It's just a classic scene, man. No matter how you dice it, everything comes down to that one little scene. Because when you pull back and you get that bird's eye view of this trilogy as a whole, one thing becomes extremely apparent. That one interaction, that singular interaction between Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker absolutely changed everything in that story. You see, if you think about it, up to that point, Skywalker had no clue who Darth Vader really was. In general, he knew he was a bad guy. In general, he knew that he was the enemy, someone who needs to be taken down so that the rebel alliance can win. In a way, you could say Skywalker had, had an understanding of who Darth Vader was, but it was a very generalized sort of arm's length understanding of who his identity truly was. But once Skywalker knew the actual answer to the question, who is Darth Vader, There is no going back to the way things were, everything Absolutely everything changed. In that moment, Skywalker instantly becomes invested as the identity of Vader becomes very, very personal in that interaction. And as we turn our attention to these verses this morning in Mark chapter 8, if we dare to make the comparison, our text before us this morning is the equivalent to that singular interaction in that movie. You see, up to this point in Mark's gospel, the disciples over and again have failed to grasp the right answer to the question, Who is Jesus? Over and again, they have witnessed Jesus do things that only God can do. They have witnessed Jesus heal people with authority. Witness Jesus cast out demons with authority, teach the truths of God with authority. They have watched Jesus multiply bread and fish, much like we've seen God do in the Old Testament. We've seen Him, Jesus, control the wind and waves with the mere command of His voice, something that is attributed only to God in the Old Testament. Even in Mark chapter 2, when Jesus has that interaction with the paralyzed man, and He heals him in a moment but he says something in that moment that blows everybody away because not only does he physically heal that man but he spiritually heals that man when he says son your sins are forgiven and when you go back into mark chapter 2 the reaction of the people is man this is pretty nuts right now because like only god is allowed to say that they understand that the ability to forgive sins is something that's attributed only to god And yet after having seen all these things over and over and over again, Mark chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, we finally come to this pinnacle interaction between the disciples. But up to this point in time, the disciples still have this arm's length understanding of who Jesus is. But with our verses this morning, the moment of truth has finally, finally arrived. Jesus is going to move the disciples from a general knowledge of who He is to a personal knowledge by asking the mother of all questions. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? See, really, it's this question that Mark wants you to wrestle with on this Resurrection Sunday. Who do you say that I am? This is the one question you've got to have an answer to in life. Jesus here in a minute is going to ask them the generalized question, who do people say that I am? The disciples are going to have a ready and willing response. Well, these people out here think this. These people out here think that. These people over here are drawing these conclusions. And Jesus is going to cut right through the chase and say, listen, that's good that you know what other people are thinking, but you have got to wrestle with this question. Who do you say that I am? And so as we move and consider the verses before us, the first thing that we're going to see is this question on the lips of of Jesus where he's just going to pose the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? This is what we see in verses 27-30. through Mark starts off in verse 27. He says that Jesus was on a trip walking with his disciples. He's going through the villages and he nears the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on this trip, he strikes up a conversation with the disciples. The time for commitment has come. This isn't time to dilly-dally on the fringes anymore. And he's going to challenge them to make a commitment by directly looking at them and pose some very heart-exposing questions, two in particular. The first one is, who do people say that I am? Now, they have a quick and ready, willing response. Verse 28, they told Jesus, well, some people are saying you're John the Baptist, who, by the way, is dead at this point in time. Others say Elijah, who's been really dead for a really long time. And others are saying, well, I don't know, maybe he's just like one of the many prophets who just sort of come floating in and out in the history of of Israel. And so before Jesus moves into the very personal question of who do you say that I am, notice that he's first going to, to engage them in conversation. And what's clear is that people of the day have very opinionated ideas on who Jesus is, his identity. Like I just said, some have agreed with Herod, who was the, one of the rulers of the day, that Jesus was some kind of reincarnation of John the Baptist. Others are arguing that Jesus was Elijah, this powerful prophet from the Old Testament. Others are just like, no, man, like, he's good, but he's not that good. He's just probably just one of the many prophets that just come showing up every now and then. You see, it was obvious that there was something special about Jesus. People are not able to just write him off as sort of like that loony guy that just sort of has been walking around saying and doing weird stuff. They recognize there's something special about him. And it led people to form this generally positive opinion about him But much like today who applaud Jesus as being just a wise teacher, just a nice moral guy, or a good man, ultimately all of these opinions fall short of the mark. They rightly honor Jesus, but ultimately they deny who he is. Jesus is not John the Baptist. Jesus is not Elijah. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a good guy. He's not some moral dude. He's not some great teacher. He's not a wise guy. True. But ultimately, they fall short of the mark. And so Jesus shifts the question to his disciples. It's one thing for them to record the opinions of others, but it's not enough to stop there. So Jesus zeroes in and asks the question, Who do you say that I am? In other words, have you seen the truth yet? Have you finally perceived my identity? You've seen the illustrations. You've seen the teaching. You've seen me do things that only God can do. It's time to draw a conclusion. Have you perceived the truth yet? Have you seen who I really am? And it's one of the greatest verses, I think, in the Bible because what happens in response to this question in verse 29 when Jesus poses the question to the disciples, who do you say that I am, out of the lips of the apostles Peter comes this confession. You are the Christ. The Christ. You're not just some guy. You're not just some carpenter. You're not just merely the son of Mary who was married to Joseph. This isn't just who you are merely. You are the Christ. So when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, it's a very, very unique word. It's a word that means anointed one. Christ is not Jesus' last name. I'm Jonathan Davis. Jesus wasn't His first name. Christ is His last name. Christ is a title that defines and describes who He is and what He came to do. You see, in the Old Testament, kings were traditionally anointed with oil as this kind of coronation. It's a way to set them apart as this anointed one. But when the word Christ was beginning to be used in the time of Jesus, it wasn't meant to just be this vague idea of someone being anointed. It came to mean the anointed one. The Messiah. The King to end all kings. This King who is going to come and put everything right. When you go back into the Old Testament Scriptures, there's all of these threads that are singing the exact same chorus that there is this one who's coming. He's the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, this one who's going to come and right all the wrongs, restore God's people back into a right relationship with God, the one who's going to come and be a sacrifice for sins, one who is going to come and make sinners right with God, the anointed one. And so when Peter says, I see it, I'm looking at him, this is the Christ. He's confessing the truth of all truths. Jesus, He's not some backwater knucklehead. He's not some crazed religious fanatic. He's not some imposter with a God complex. No, God had intervened and opened Peter's spiritual eyes to see that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Christ. You can go into Matthew's gospel, where we there find that Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. That is Peter's official name. Where he says, Peter, you didn't figure this out because you're just a reasonable and logical kind of guy. You, you, You figured this out because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. God had intervened in the life of Peter and the scales have fallen from his eyes. His spiritual blindness has been turned to spiritual sight. And he's looking at Jesus, a man full of flesh, hair breathing, eats, sleeps, drinks food, drinks water. But Peter sees finally, this guy's the Christ. Unless you think that this was just something that would be easily rolling off the lips of Peter because people in the first century day were just stupid people. They believed this kind of stuff, that people could just sort of show up and be, be gods in the flesh. That's ah, so what those people way back then, those uneducated, non learning kind of types, such as they kind of believe. That's the farthest thing from the truth. Gee, Peter was an Orthodox Jew. There is one God. And for him to look at jesus of nazareth and to say you are the son of god the christ was not something that would just have easily rolled off his lips for him to confess you are the christ would be for him to confess something that was divinely revealed from god because it just wouldn't have normally been the thing that peter someone like peter would have gone around to say And so now that God has revealed this answer to the question, who is Jesus, notice that something really weird happens in verse 30. Jesus strictly charges them, don't tell anybody about this. And you sort of pause and go like, I think, is that like an error? Did Mark sort of like mix this part of the story up? Like you think upon the confession of Peter that you are the Christ, Jesus would be like, that's that boy, now go get him. Go tell everybody. But he doesn't. He says you need to slow your roll because you need to understand something about who I am as the Christ. Yes, I am the Christ. I am this anointed one, Jesus says. But what you need to know is that I'm not anything like the king you were expecting. The idea of the Christ in Jesus' day was that he would just be an earthly ruler, sort of like a King David amped up on steroids, who's just going to come in, wipe out Roman oppression, and restore the nation of Israel to like this political, geographical kind of kingdom. And so this idea is lingering in the back of the minds of these people. Where they're like, this is him. Uh, like, we're, Let's get him into Jerusalem real quick. We need to get Herod off the throne. We need to get Jesus. And they're like, that would have been the rumblings of ideas going on in the back of their mind. But Jesus says, listen, I am the Christ. But what you need to know is I am not going to usher in the kingdom of God and rule on a throne of power. I am going to be the kind of Christ that actually goes and suffers and dies. And that was the furthest thing that any of those disciples would have wanted to hear. Christ's don't die. Christ's rule with power. And they get oppression out of here. They reign on earthly thrones like a King David and they make stuff happen. They don't go to a cross and die and so Jesus says, you guys need to slow your roll because now is going to come lesson two. It's taken you eight chapters to figure out who I am, and now we're going to take the rest of the book to help you guys understand what I came to do. And that's really the question that, that consumes these back half of our verses this morning. Verses 31 through 33, Jesus switches from who am I to what did I come to do? You see, Jesus, it's true, He is the Christ, but what the disciples needed to grasp is that Jesus is the Christ who came to suffer and die. Mark tells us that after strictly charging them to tell no one about Him, Jesus, notice this, began to teach the disciples that the Son of Man must do four things. Must. Little word, four letters, all of our verses this morning hinge on this, this word, must. Began to teach the disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things, must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. He must be killed. Must. Mark tells us that Jesus began to plainly lay out for the disciples what it meant for him to be the Christ. He told them that he must suffer, must be rejected, must be killed. This is why he came. These events weren't mere possibilities. These weren't events where, you know, if things really go south and stuff doesn't happen like I've planned, we might land up here perhaps if certain things could possibly do. These, he's like, no, guys. This is an inevitability, unavoidable. It's a must, it's a certainty. It's necessary. It's going to happen. These things had to occur suffering, rejection, and death. They have to occur if I am going to fulfill what I came to do. Listen, Satan is totally okay with the idea of a Christ. Do you guys know this? Satan is cool with a Messiah, an anointed one, a Christ just so long as that Christ is not a suffering or a rejected Christ. See, Satan is totally okay with the idea of a Christ so long as he avoids the cross and just stays in the grave. Satan's cool with dead Christs. See, Satan is smart enough to know that the mustness of the Messiah's suffering is his undoing. So from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Satan had sought to do whatever he could to get Jesus to avoid the cross. You go into Matthew chapter 4, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Pretty famous story, if you know a little bit of the Bible. Jesus goes out in the wilderness, 40 days of fasting, food, and water. At the end of that 40 days, who shows up? Satan. Satan. What does Satan want to do? He begins to tempt him, tempts him in three different ways. The the third and the final temptation is Jesus. I understand that I'm speaking as if I were the words of Satan. I'm paraphrasing here. He says, Jesus, listen, I understand that you are the Christ. I understand that you're the king. I understand that power and authority and dominion and rule, it all belongs to you. He takes Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple. He shows them the kingdoms of the world and says, listen, this is all yours. I will give it to you if you'll just avoid the cross and bow down and worship." Me. Do you see what he's saying? He's like, I'm cool with you being the Christ. Just don't go to the cross. I'll give you what's already yours. Just don't go there. And so now we have Satan. Luke tells us that after that temptation, that Satan tucks away in order to come back and tempt him at a more convenient time, Luke chapter 4. And guess where that more convenient time is? I think we're staring at it right now. Because guess who shows up back again in our verses this morning? Satan. But this time, Satan's accent sounds like a Galilean fisherman named Peter. See, unfortunately, Peter finds himself in the same place as Satan when he takes Jesus aside and he begins to rebuke him. Like Satan at the temptation in the wilderness, Peter offers Jesus the crown with the cross. I mean, this is, again, I say this often, and maybe it's just because of the way my mind works. Man, I would kill for a video recording of this interaction. Can you imagine it? The disciples, just sort of like Mark chapter 1 to chapter 8, man, they're just stumbling. They're just bumbling. Man, they don't get it. And all of a sudden, it's like, Psh, they smack right into it, man. God gives it to them. Jesus is the Christ. I mean, it's like, you know, pin, pin a little gold star next to Peter's name, man. He gets it, and maybe he's, he's puffed up and he's full. He's like, man, I, Jesus is the Christ. I know what Christ have come to do. Jesus immediately says, you don't quite get it. And so Peter it's like sort of like, oh, Jesus, come on, man. You know, he sort of puts his arm around him, takes his fingers, you know, like I was in the military. We call it the five-finger point, you know, it just starts... Tapping him on the, sh- on the chest of Jesus like, listen, you're the Christ, but you don't get it, Jesus. Let me explain the Old Testament to you. Christs don't die. And Peter looks right at him and says, or Jesus looks right at him and says, no, Peter. I am the Christ. And it's because I am the Christ. This is exactly why I must die. Must die. See, for a moment, Peter had began to speak with the accent of Satan, and that's why he gets rebuked by Jesus. Jesus, as plain as day, is saying to him, I am the Christ, and what I came to do is suffer, be rejected, and be killed. This is who I am. This is what I came to do. You see, everything everything hinges on the must of jesus suffering soul saving salvation must come from a crucified christ this is god's plan there is no other way for you to be made right with god it comes through the mustness of the messiah Listen, sin, because of sin, humanity stands broken before God. Sin separates sinners from their creator. And the Bible clearly says that the destroying effect of sin is a universal problem. It is a universal problem that touches old and young, man, woman, boy, girl, rich, poor, ethnicity, race, socioeconomic class, your political persuasion, whatever it might be, sin's tentacles stretch out and destroys everything. The Bible says all of sinned, all. It's a three-letter word that's crucial. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's the universal problem of humanity. And the thing is, the Bible says this is no small problem. The Bible doesn't say all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, I guess is the sports on this afternoon? The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible says this is a huge problem that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God because the wages of sin is death. You go back into Genesis chapter 3, and what you find is this is that the moment Adam and Eve disobeyed God and thrust the entire world into a place of sin, two things resulted: idea of death. And those two ideas coming out of death was physical death and spiritual death. Physical death in the sense of death, humanity, men and women are now going to die. Death in this world where we are separated from our soul and our body goes into the ground, that was not part of God's original design. Death, physical death, is the result of sin. We were not created by God to die. But more importantly spiritual death comes as a result as well in that moment in genesis chapter 3 and from every person going forward we are spiritually dead separated from god because of our sin the bible romans 6 23 says the huge problem of the universe the universal problem that is huge for humanity is that the wages of sin is death this is the penalty we have all earned for our sin all of us have accumulated a debt of sin and this debt of sin requires a payment. Requires a payment. And ultimately, it's a payment that you and I cannot make on our own. And so if Jesus was ever going to save people from the penalty for their sin, then He had to. He must make a full payment that could satisfy our debt. And this is why Jesus is here looking at His disciples saying, I'm the Christ because you have a debt of sin that you cannot pay and because humanity has a debt of sin that they cannot pay. Somebody's got to make this payment and it's going to be me. I'm going to make this payment. That is why I, as the Christ, the only one who's qualified to make this payment, must suffer, must be rejected, must be killed. The cross is my inevitable future because at the cross, I am going to make the payment for the debt of sin. I must. I must. I must. And because Jesus must suffer... And because Jesus must be rejected, and because Jesus must be killed, Jesus says, my death on the cross is the only way your debt is going to find satisfactory payment. Now, everything I just said is the good news of Good Friday. That's what we celebrate on Friday. Good Friday, the death of Jesus. But guess what we're celebrating today? We're not celebrating Good Friday today. We're celebrating Resurrection Sunday. And do you know what's so good about Resurrection Sunday? Is that Easter doesn't merely rest on a Christ who must suffer and must be killed. See, if you've been paying attention, then you will have noticed that there's one last must that I've intentionally left off in this list of four. Over and again, you've been hearing me say, must suffer, must be rejected, must be killed. Must suffer, must be rejected, must be killed. But what's that fourth must that Jesus says he has to do over here in verse 31? On the third day, he must rise again. He must rise again. You see, this is the good news of Easter. It does It merely rest on a Christ who must suffer and be killed. No, the good news of Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, is that it rests on a Christ who must resurrect, must rise again, because His death put sin to death. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, His resurrection proved He is the only one who is fully able to satisfy our dead of sin. The resurrection of Christ from the grave is God's stamp of approval. The payment of Christ on the cross satisfies the debt of sin. If Jesus said, I just must suffer, must be rejected, must die, goes to the cross, dies, goes in the grave, and becomes a sack of bones in a Palestinian grave, we don't have a Christ. We've still got a problem. And it's called our sin. But on the third day, when Jesus resurrects from the grave, it's the trumpet blast of heaven that says payment paid in full. Christ from the grave says your debt of sin can be paid. And that's why we celebrate Resurrection Sunday. It's the good news follow up to Good Friday. We sang it this morning. There in the ground his body lay. Light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day. Up from the grave he rose again. And he stands in victory. Sin's curse has lost its grip on me. Can I ask you a question? Has sin's curse lost its grip on you? Has sin's curse lost its grip on you? On this Resurrection Sunday, if you cannot say, I know Jesus is the Christ, and if you cannot say, I am trusting in what He came to do, suffer, be rejected, be killed, and rise again, If you cannot say, I am trusting in these things, I am believing in these things, then I would encourage you to say, you can't affirm that sin's curse has lost its grip on you. It goes back to those verses that we ended with as our prayer, or as our affirmation, when Connor said and gave us Romans chapter 10 verse 9, if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, then you will be saved. They go together. It's admitting Jesus is Lord. I'm not Lord. It's agreeing with God. I'm a sinner. I need help. It's agreeing that I try to be Lord, I try to do these things in my life, but what I often do is try to take the place of Jesus in my life. It's agreeing Jesus is Lord. It's believing in your heart God has raised him from the dead. He is the one who is totally able to pay my debt of sin. And so now what I'm going to do is confess with my mouth my absolute need. I need the Christ to forgive my sin if you are there in that place then that last little verse there in that song we sang this morning sin's curse has lost its grip on me this is true for you so as you think about what we're wrestling with this morning these two questions that we've been chewing on who is jesus and what did he come to do Either Jesus is going to be an arm's length good guy who's done some neat religious stuff and you're going to get up and walk out the doors and just mosey on, on down the road. Or you can do serious wrestling and by God's grace, He divinely intervened in your life and reveal to you that Jesus isn't just some arm's length good guy who did some neat religious stuff, but that Jesus is the Christ who came to die and rise again so that you could have life in Him. And if this is the place where you find yourself this morning, then my invitation is for you to respond in prayer, to respond in worship, to respond in praise, because on this Resurrection Sunday, you have life in Him. Let's pray. God, thank You for the truth of the cross, that at the cross... We find our victory at the cross, we find our hope at the cross, we find the satisfactory payment for the debt of sin that we could never pay for ourselves. But God, we don't merely just look at the cross. We celebrate the cross. We need that sacrificial payment for our sins. But God, we also cast our gaze to three days later to that empty tomb. (laughs) We rejoice on Resurrection Sunday that the empty tomb is the exclamation point of the cross. It says sin has been defeated. Satan has been destroyed. Death has been put to death. And for anyone here this morning who's trusting in these things, who can confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised Him from the dead, the promise is that they will be saved. God, do a work of divine intervention this morning. Save souls, Father. Encourage the saints. It's in your name I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.